If there is any concept worth restoring to its original depth and evocative potential, it is the concept of hospitality. This quote from Henry Nouwen, a renowned Dutch Catholic priest, rings true in every fiber of my being. The churches I've always served as a pastor have always sought ways to engage the visitor and provide a sense of welcome. Contemporary scholar Christine Pohl at Asbury Theological Seminary has revived the conversation about the significance of hospitality in the Christian tradition. In particular, she points to St. Benedict's rule and how making room for the stranger demonstrates Christ's love. She points to the Anabaptist of the Reformation movement making hospitality a priority, to the Catholic worker communities led by Dorothy Day in the 1930s, even to today's fellowship halls and coffee shops. Christians recognize that space and time, patience, humility, engagement, and refreshment are beautiful ways to give expression to the love of Christ. Much of our recent discourse and demeanor in the church, however, is sorely wanting. Barna reports that sizable portions of U.S. adults view evangelical Christians as narrow-minded, homophobic, misogynistic, and even racist. Sadly, in some instances, perception has become reality. I grieve because these numbers may be increasing as I've encountered political views, opinions about public health, conversations on race. These conversations being hijacked by a lack of hospitality, a rudeness, and indifference towards one another. I've had calls lately from kind-hearted people asking me, how can I be around, let alone love, this person or family member who holds such different views than mine? We have a crisis of hospitality in the church, and it spills over into our workplaces as we seek to live missionally in our vocations. Are we approachable to work colleagues, or do they, like the greater culture, assume these unfortunate descriptors Barnum mentions about Christ followers? Are we able to provide a safe refuge for those who are in crisis? Are we known as those who seek the common good? And even through our work with our company's products and services to serve greater society. Nuance is a podcast of The Collaborative where we wrestle together about life beyond the walls of the church and especially at work. Here we wade into the muddy waters of the public square itself, giving special attention to the work of our hands, our careers, our vocational efforts. This season, we're exploring what is meant by the public square, particular to four characteristics of Christian citizenship, principal pluralism, common grace, prophetic voice, and today, hospitality. I am grateful to be today with my friend and mentor, leader in the American church, the Reverend Rufus Smith. Rufus is the senior pastor of Hope Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee, the largest Presbyterian congregation in the U.S. Over the past eight years, Hope has transitioned from a predominantly Caucasian congregation to a multi-ethnic church in the Deep South, 30% of her members being people of color. In 2016, Rufus founded the Memphis Christian Pastors Network, an ethnically and denominationally diverse clergy network that bridges the trust gap between pastors. 
Join us as my colleague Crossland Stewart and I explore hospitality with Reverend Smith. My name is Case Thorpe, and welcome to Nuance. Well, welcome, Crossland. Good to be back with you. It's great to be here. And welcome, Reverend Smith. So grateful that you're here. Well, thank you for inviting me. Well, and I mean it, um, your friendship to me, uh, you're a mentor, and um, your wisdom is, is, is notable, and I appreciate it. Thank you. It's mutual. Well, Reverend Smith, I know you and Case know each other well, but I would love for um, our audience to learn a little bit more about you. Uh, so could you tell us briefly about your call to ministry and in, and in particular your call to Hope uh, Presbyterian Church? Uh, yes, ma'am. Thank you, Crossland. I uh, was not raised in church, uh, but uh, I came to church uh, as a pre-adolescent. I was really raised in cafes and bars and so forth. Uh, my grandmother on my maternal side and grandmother on my paternal side. Uh, and so forth. Um, and actually, uh, when we moved to a new neighborhood, um, we had um, a neighbor who actually knocked on our front door and asked if they could come in to our home and have what they call mission in those days. And that means they would come in um, and they would sing songs, pray prayers, teach a lesson. We, we had no concept of that, but to be neighborly, my, my dad said yes. And so they came. And, um, and that was our first introduction uh, into, into the gospel. Um, subsequent to that, um, as I grew in my faith, I never really wanted to preach and pastor at all, zero. Um, but I did like to teach and I like to teach the Bible. And so I started teaching youth groups and crusades and so forth, uh, but never preaching. In fact, when I married in 1984, a condition my wife gave was that you would never be a preacher. She said, I'll marry a ditch digger, I'll marry a doctor, a ditch digger, but never a preacher. And I said, wow. no problem. Uh, you won't have that out of me. I wow. will preach. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Four years later, I had to deal with this, this calling uh, to preach. And I, I just had a desire uh, to, I was a speaker, lay speaker, going around the country, talking to youth groups and young adults. But I got this desire to want to see them go deeper and take a deeper dive into the word of God. And so uh, pastoral ministry started to become a burden. And so in 1988, I surrendered, as they say, to the call to preach and pastor. Uh, and that's why I've been uh, ever since. I started as a Baptist pastor. Um, and then in 1998, uh, I was called to an EPC church in Houston, Texas, called the City of Refuge. Uh, it was a replant, actually. And we we really wanted to uh, reach out to those who were marginalized. Um, and that's what we did. Um, it was an experiment that became a grand experience. Uh, that church eventually became multi-ethnic, multi-generational and multi-social um, uh, in terms of reaching out to people who were marginalized. 
over those 12 years, I had come to know Dr. Craig Strickland here at Hope, who was the founding pastor here, and Dr. Eli Morris, who was a senior associate, and we had connected over the years. Uh, so in um, 2010, uh, January, Dr. Strickland called and asked if I would pray about coming to succeed him in Memphis, Tennessee, which I absolutely did not want to do, told him no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we, were, we were moving and doing wonderfully, um, had gone through some of those tough years, making the transition from mono-ethnic to multi-ethnic, and uh, we were coasting. And I mean, Crossland, I, it was the best time of our ministry. We were in the middle of a six and a half million dollar capital campaign. We finished that to add on to what we were doing. And so that was no reason for, for me to leave uh, in that regard. But over several months, uh, God uh, convicted me and uh, my wife and I moved here to Memphis, Tennessee, where we've been for 11 and a half years and uh, love it. I came kicking and screaming, but I hope I die here now. <laughs> what a story of how God moves. That That is fantastic. So thank you for sharing that. What I hear you saying is, it was predestined you were to go from Baptist to Presbyterian. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, but that's what I hear. Well, yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, and it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> It is a great story within our denomination for sure, and I know uh, a buzz amongst other pastoral leaders just how hope has reflected the kingdom even more with its multi-ethnic approach. So I can imagine, though, I mean, hospitality is a huge part of that transition. Could you speak to that transition and the role hospitality played? Absolutely. Um, and I must say that uh, Pastor Craig and Pastor Eli set the tone and tenor uh, for being externally focused uh, since 1988. Who are Caucasian. Yes, who are Caucasian, absolutely. And um, who live in a city that is majority minority. And so they had a holy discontent the church did not reflect um, its mm. one, three, five mile radius and uh, wanted to do something uh, about that. But beyond that uh, case, uh, if you had asked people, and still today, by God's grace, uh, tell us what you know about Hope Church, uh, they would say things like, that's the church that um, really is welcoming to everybody. Um, they remember uh, Katrina, they remember uh, when it's extremely hot, being a cooling station, they remember uh, the great flood uh, that we had here in 2011. They remember right. um, uh, having homeless uh, people to come and stay at the church for a week at a time. I mean, so you have a few come for a week and then they leave and then others, others come back. They remember uh, during all the disasters that Hope was actually like uh, the flagship Red Cross station. So the external focus and welcoming strangers uh, was the tone antenna was set so that when we started to reach out and wanted to reflect uh, more ethnically in age, uh, the church and the surrounding community, uh, that that landscape had already been laid. Mm. Very important. Very important. And so did you 
feel like you had to, so I, I don't know, did you feel like you had to teach or preach more on hospitality or because the tone was set, that was the, the, the DNA of the place? Well, I, w- I would not say that hospitality was necessarily the DNA of the place. We did preach and teach about it. And as we say around here, every church has an invisible sign that says you're welcome these days. But that's not the question. The question is, do fee- people feel wanted? And uh, more than yeah. feeling wanted, do they feel needed? And so we wanted to move from being a welcome place to a place where people were actually feeling wanted. Um, and that, that to me is something that we really began uh, to cultivate as far as hospitality. And when you say, uh, as you said earlier, now when you are talking about um, racial issues, particularly in a place like Memphis, but in anywhere in America, and you're talking about a age if difference, um, there is almost as much tension uh, in a church when it comes to age differences and changes um, than racial uh, differences and changes. Not as much, but but they have to run parallel. Uh, and so that is uh, something that we uh, made sure that we emphasize as well. So yes, that was preaching and teaching, but there also were small groups built around having safe places to have conversations. So how would you define hospitality? Uh, obviously, I'm going to take uh, uh, Crossland, the, the Greek word, philoxenia. Uh, uh, people will probably understand xenophobia, hospitality. Uh, it would be quite the opposite. It's not the fear of strangers, but the love of strangers. And so yeah. I think biblically you start there, the love of, of strangers. Um, and so the most important verse to me with respect to hospitality is what we find in Leviticus 19.34. We try to remind our people of that as well. When the Lord said to his people, um, I want you to love the stranger, the sojourner, when you come into this new land. And I want you to love them who are sojourning through um, because remember this, you once were strangers in Egypt. Um, And this is being said by the Lord your God. So it was a command for them to love the stranger when they came into the land and they had control. Because in Egypt, they didn't have control and they were treated horribly. God says, I don't want you to be that. I want you to do quite the opposite. When the stranger comes in and passing through your land or decide to stay in your land, I want you to treat them like you would have wanted to be treated while you were in Egypt. That's such a great uh, place for us to begin thinking about this because, you know, with nuance, we're focused on looking at the workplace in particular. And so as you think about strangers or sojourners, that could equal that could easily be new clients or new employees or uh, new vendors um, or whatever. And so we're trying to encourage believers to engage their lives really post-benediction beyond the church and um, and think about how, what role hospitality could play specifically at work. Amen. What are your thoughts in terms of 
because I'm sure you want your people not just doing this for the sake of hope church, but for your community and their businesses. So how, do, how can you help us think better about that? Well, I'm not sure I can help you think better, but I can give you a perspective. And, and, and that is, as Jesus followers, as you said, post-benediction, um, the one thing that we lead with is hospitality or healing. We don't lead with teaching or preaching the gospel or trying to convert people. Mm-hmm. In fact, when Jesus came, the Bible says he came preaching, teaching, and healing. And he led with healing. And because he led with healing the hurts of a fallen humanity, it created an atmosphere for him to be heard. And I think oftentimes in the evangelical church, or as Jesus followers in general, uh, we, we shoot right past hospitality and move right into trying to convert or uh, convince people of what's right and what's wrong. That's Amen. not what Jesus did at all. He healed indiscriminately. I mean, he did not require people to believe in him before he did it. He just came out and demonstrated the love of God in the fallen world by healing indiscriminately and and was so radical in the ancient world that people said, who who is this? Who is this person? Um, And then it created an atmosphere to be heard. So I think as Jesus followers, when we're in the public square, particularly uh, in our workplaces, we simply need to demonstrate the healing touch of Jesus. And that's just being kind and speaking and being mm-hmm. civil, uh, respecting people's um, where they are. And then that will create an atmosphere to be heard. Well, and Rufus, that's why I wanted to speak with you on this topic, because you've just, you lead with kindness. Uh, and so there's an approachability. And yet, why is it so hard for our people to do this? If these Barna statistics are true. I mean, 21% view Christians as narrow-minded, um, 10% as racist, 17% as homophobic. Why do we struggle with this? Hmm. In case I think uh, we have forgotten really um, what being a Jesus follower is, is all about. You know, the early church, I like to say the church at its birth was the church at its best. And at its birth, the early church modeled what Jesus did. And that is, um, he was out healing the hurts of humanity as opposed to trying to convince people of his doctrine. And I think we have gotten away from that. You know, it was the church who actually started uh, the concept that we say is hospitals. That's right. That's right. You did that. And it's hospital hospitality. That's right. It's because they understood uh, what Jesus said. That is, I want you to go out into the world and you will win people because of here is how God has treated you because you were a stranger to him. You were alienated. You were an enemy. But look what he did to you. Then I want you to go out and do that to others. And that calls people to take their doctrine to duty or their precepts uh, to practice. And we have forgotten that. We've gotten stuck in the precepts and the doctrine and forgotten about the practice and the duties. It was also the church that uh, started orphanages. Look look in church history, the the number of people who saw strangers, particularly kids, 
who were outside, nothing to do. You know, public school was not uh, mandated as it is today. Uh, only rich people could send their people to school, but it was Jesus followers uh, like Reiki in England and others who saw these kids and strangers and provided school on Sunday, mm. which we now call yeah. Sunday school. But they were motivated post-benediction, I like that crossing, because they understood that if Jesus has really made an impact in my life, then how can I do the same in others? So I think we simply need to move back from precept to practice and from doctrine to duty. Rufus, I was moved uh, when uh, I developed a friendship. Uh, there was an outside vendor that rented our kitchen space for many years, and their hiring practices were different than ours, and they had a Muslim woman on their staff, and she became a friend. And one time she said, you know, I hope to make enough money one day to build my own mosque, and I'm going to make it look like a lot of what y'all do. <laughs> I said, oh, tell me more. And she said, well, between your services, y'all pour out into the courtyard and everybody talks and enjoys one another and the fathers with their sons and the, she even noted, men and women together. <laughs> and I was just so touched with that outside eye looking back at us yes. towards something that feels totally normal to me. Yes. Um, but but you've mentioned even the leading, the leaning in with hospitality. So I hear from folks in their work situations that um, will say, well, I can be hospitable when I need to, mm. <laughs> or if approached, I will be hospitable, but it's a tone. Yes. It, it precedes us in ways that we may not even realize. You're exactly right. I, I as I said, I had a career uh, working outside of pastoral ministry. Uh, and I can remember uh, being in new job situations uh, where people who worked there reached out to me. Now, I was particularly uh, sensitive to this, being an African-American and working in white spaces. So I took particular note of people mm who really reached out. Now, you know, technically, administratively, we call it onboarding, but this this was informal. People who were yeah, being hospitable right. to a new workmate or a stranger. Um, and same thing in schools. I mean, if you're in school and you're a teacher, what an incredible opportunity you have for mm. uh, hospitality. Can I tell you a quick story? Please. Please. All right. So I was bused uh, in the fifth grade to an all white school. My mom protested. She lost the protest. And I'd never been around the other culture, uh, white, white Americans at all. Uh, so now I was thrust into this fifth grade atmosphere, all white. In fact, my father sent me down when we the, the night before I was to go and said, son, let me tell you something. White people would never be your friend. Now, this is a man who came out of World War II, uh, who served faithfully, uh, defended his country, came back to America, and still was treated um, yeah. the way that uh, they were treated in segregation days. So he had no, no concept of uh, white people really being friendly or hospitable. And oh, he wow. taught me and said, that's not going to be the case. Don't try to be friends. Go to school. Keep your mouth shut. Do your work. Uh, he said, do mm -hmm. your lesson and come home. 
That's what he wanted. He was trying to protect me. So that's sure. why I went to this school. And I was traumatized. And one teacher, Mr. Joe Sorella, um, would come to me. And in fact, it was like eight of us who were transferred. About three of us were in his classroom. But Joe Sorella would come to me. I'll never forget it. Um, and tell me how smart I was. He would write <laughs> on my papers, good job, Rufus. Um, and he would commend me publicly. I, and I'll never forget Joe Sorella. Uh, Joe Sorella contradicted with his hospitality everything that my dad said would happen. Mm -hmm. He was mm -hmm. opposite. And yeah. that caused me to feel safe uh, and to feel accepted and to feel wanted. In fact, at the end of the school year, he and another teacher asked that I would run for class president. And I said, oh no, I, I won't. Ever do that. Uh, but they insisted that I do. And by some miracle, I won't bore you with the details. Um, I won. You won. I won. Uh, now I'm not surprised. Now I now I went to my my remember I said I was raising cafes and bars. So I really bribed my way. I went and got pickles and candy from my <laughs> grandmother's uh, cafe. And when I gave my little political speech, I passed them out. Yeah. Well, my fourth grader recently told me how he and a buddy were paying quarters to other people for votes for the same situation. I'm like, Brooks, no, no, you can't buy votes. That's right. So, so Mr. Sorella is, is he, he, um, he really contradicted by showing that hospitality. Crossland, I was telling that story in my church in Houston. I was telling that story and uh, to let people know well, we had about a hundred um, white um, believers from a First Baptist Church coming in to do VBS. And they would be around uh, kids that were African-American. And I said to them, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. If you lead with Jesus, uh, then you will be effective because, you know, some of them were a little uh, uncomfortable. Uh, and so I told this story about Joe Sorella and how this white gentleman made an impact in my life. And a young lady took out her, she stood up and said, Pastor Smith, can I, can I say something? I said, yeah. She said, Joe Sorella was my dad. <gasps> really? I said, I said, are you serious? Wow. Joe Sorella <laughs> was my daddy. She took out her cell phone and called him. And he answered. <laughs> and and he she said dad there's a, a a young man here he's a pastor he just told a story about you when you were in the fifth grade his name is Rufus Smith do you remember him and she I didn't hear it she said he said I do he was a quiet young man and that was true <laughs> um and 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 so anyway she had that conversation and then I started crying and the reason oh, my I goodness crying, and I, I get emotional even now. Well, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> I have been praying for 10 years and asking God to help me find Joe Sorella so I could say thank you. <laughs> and I'm wow. telling you, that day, um, God answered my prayer. But it was his hospitality at school, his workplace, but school for me that changed my whole concept. And to a large degree, I'm in multi-ethnic ministry because of Joe Sorrell. Mm. That is such a great story. And to me, one of the things that comes through is how something 
that somebody might perceive to be fairly insignificant, you know, a note at the top of a paper or a comment, a passing comment to a student, is just a reminder that we have no idea where people are. Mm -hmm. And so when we extend the love of Christ to one another, the impact can be significant. Amen. And I love what it did for you and your life and that you it came full circle for you. That's just what an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. And you know, there are subcultural clues. Yes. Um, when new people come into workspaces, an atmosphere is already set. They just don't know it. And, <laughs> yeah. and they are uh, hypersensitive, obviously. So when people come by and uh, make themselves available and smile or notes or welcome, um, uh, can we take you to lunch, sit with you while you're in the lunchroom, if that's the kind of atmosphere. As you said, Crossland, you have no idea what this new person who's not going to come in and show you that they're hypersensitive, but you've been there, you know it. And sure. uh, a kind word, uh, a hospitable act, makes all the difference in the world. Well, if I could share on that. So David Swanson, my boss, um, many, many years ago, we hosted a large community event in our sanctuary. And um, a number of the very prominent African-American pastors were a part of this. And everybody knew who was a part of the program up front, meet the prayer room beforehand. So David and I just instinctively greet everybody, shake hands, Glad to see y'all here. Let's have some time of prayer. We go out and we have the event. Well, a week later, the executive director of this ministry hosting the event calls me and he says, do you realize what y'all did? Hmm. <laughs> and my heart dropped at first thinking, uh-oh. <laughs> and he said, no case. He said, y'all were just being nice and doing what you always do. He said, a number of those African-American pastors grew up on the other side of the tracks. Yes. And they were told, we don't go over there. Yeah. And you don't go in that church. Right. And the fact that David so nonchalantly was so thrilled to see everybody, that spoke volumes to them that will forever change y'all's conversations. Amen. You're exactly right. In, in your case, that, that lets us know how the evangelical church, the American church, wittingly or unwittingly, have been complicit in this division because yes. of yeah. our uh, practical theology, um, we fall prey to cultural norms. Whereas this idea of hospitality you're talking about, um, it, it breaks those cultural norms. And, but the church has not done that, um, at least uniformly. I mean, we've had our bright spots um, this is not one of those bright spots, but we certainly can brighten it. Well, and also emphasizes that, you know, for a church institutionally, we just need to keep practicing it. It's Amen. not a one and done. It's something that you continue to nurture and grow so that I love the phrasing of our practical th theology uh, makes us susceptible or allows us to fall prey to the culture. That's a great thing for mm -hmm. us to have on our institutional dashboards, for our personal mm -hmm. dashboards to recognize that we're very susceptible. Mm. 
Okay. Speaking of a number of folks in the workplace, because of the racial conversation in our country right now, uh, feel very stuck when critical race theory, wokeness, these things come up. Uh, what advice would you have for us and our vocations in navigating these very choppy waters where there's a lot of polarization and a lot of divisiveness? What would you have to say? The first thing I would do, um, and I'm speaking as a minority, uh, in this case, an ethnic minority in the, in the workplace, but I'm not, I'm not going to speak to anybody. And that is, if I have a personal relationship with a person of color, then I would leverage that personal relationship and ask them, help me navigate these waters. Um, I want to be hospitable. I want to be civil. I want to reflect Jesus. Um, and even if they're not a Jesus follower, I just want to be civil and have a conversation. I would leverage my personal relationships that I have uh, with a person of color and then just ask them. The second thing I would do, if I don't have that relationship, I may have a cordial relationship uh, or a cohort relationship because we work together and we may speak uh, superficially, but at least they will recognize who I am and humble yourself and go and say to them, listen, um, help me understand uh, this conversation. Help me understand uh, CRT. Help me understand uh, terms like white supremacy and white privilege. I, I don't, uh, and, and if, if you do that, many people, if not most, will be willing to have that conversation. So leverage a relationship you have if it's personal. And if you don't have one, take advantage of a cohort relationship, working in the same place or department or school, and just mm -hmm. take them aside. They would appreciate that. Uh, you can do this. We've done this recently in our church, mainly with agents, ages. Because taking people who are millennials or Gen Zs to say, are we really connecting and getting the message over? Um, so it can be done in any area where there is divisiveness. But that's why I would start uh, in that regard by asking uh, people who I have relationships with or humbling myself and take having the courage to go to people who I don't have a personal relationship with, but I may have a working relationship with and asking them to help me engage this conversation. Well, I've even heard you publicly share a, another great suggestion, and that is whether it's the racial conversation or any of our social issues right now, speak from biblical categories rather than the political sociological categories. Those are there and they have a place, but if you constantly think through biblical terms, biblical categories, to me, it's not just a safer place to be, but it also helps bear forth your witness of what matters to you. Amen. You just you exactly right, Case. I was recently, a couple of weeks ago, talking to a group of people, and the issue of climate change came up. We never got to climate change because I changed the conversation. I said, well, climate change is a uh, secular term uh, that can be politicized. As Jesus followers, let's talk about stewards of creation. Yeah. And let's go back to Genesis 2, when the Lord said, let's take care of creation. I've given it to you, and I've given you dominion over it. 
Um, and I think that just that nuance, uh, Crossland, uh, can start the conversation because we get trapped in the secular language and sometimes in city areas politicized when you talk about climate change. Well, as a Jesus follower, let's just talk about being stewards of creation. And when you talk about, am I a good steward of God's creation, then you can begin to ask questions about waste and uh, pollution and uh, so forth and so on. So I think, uh, thank you, Case, uh, for for that. But I think when we do all issues like that, we have to be careful not to be trapped by the secular language. We have to find out, all right, what is the biblical parallel that we're really yeah. talking about? And at least Jesus followers uh, can avoid the trap of uh, a conversation being politicized. Well, you may remember, Rufus, I reached out to you once and I said, oh, okay, send me that parallel list, please, of the... <laughs> Cultural racial terms and their biblical equivalent. And you said, sorry, man, don't have it. <laughs> it's up here. But I may go make me a list. Well, I, I do think that's such a great recommendation to be thinking about the vocabulary we use and don't allow the political thing of the day to be dictating that. Uh, and to me, the other thing that comes to mind as I hear both of y'all talking about this is just. Also, tell your competitive spirit to take a chill pill because, you know, I do think we, we enter into these conversations and then it's all about winning yes. versus actually, let's take a posture of listening yeah. and trust in the Lord's providence and sovereignty that there will come a time where we have an opportunity to put input or to give input. But maybe today and tomorrow is not that time. So um, the vocabulary is a great, a great um, recommendation. Rufus, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been really helpful. Um, You know, we can kind of toss these ideas around, but to hear from someone who's lived and breathed it and, and actually have seen the fruit of it. I mean, what a tremendous thing you're doing at Hope by God's grace. Yes. and we will continue to pray for his protection on you and your leadership and what you're doing, because uh, that's just it's so encouraging. Um, so thank you again for being well, with thank, us. Thank both of you for this concept of nuance and changing the uh, texture of the conversation and helping mm-hmm. people to think more biblically. Uh, I think this would be very fruitful. Thank you for doing it. So Crossland, I mean, that was so good. Man, he's great. What's so fun is the things he believes um, and thinks are important, he's been able to implement in his church, and you're seeing the fruit there when you take a very Caucasian church in the Deep South in Memphis, and in eight years' time, it's multi-ethnic. I mean, that's... That's quite remarkable. That says something about him and obviously about God's grace. Well, he said core components of hospitality are where people feel wanted and needed. And that's, to me, the extra push um, that I need you in my life. Um, I know when we host events at our house, and I love the gift of hospitality. I think it's one of the great ways my wife and I 
come together in ministry because we love doing it. But we do it because we need people in our lives. We right. um, grow and enjoy the interaction so much. Uh, he used that term, holy discontent, that there was a holy discontent. Their church didn't look like they wanted it to look. So then I think, okay, um, I'm in the workplace and I, you know, I don't want or necessarily need <laughs> to lean in and to engage with the other. How do you get there? Well, to me, that's where spiritual formation comes in. I feel like Rufus is one by his demeanor has been so shaped by the Holy Spirit for decades Yeah, that then his hospitality precedes him. Yes. And he clearly is sensitive to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. You know, mm -hmm. his entire call in life was something he didn't want to do. And yet both he and his wife felt compelled to go to ministry after they had said, absolutely not a preaching ministry. Um, yeah, I, um, I, I think somewhere in the midst of the need versus the wanting is also this idea of love, the love of people. You know, you mm. recognize you need people in your life because you love people, you know, and Philosenia. we're, we're called to love people. And so love one another. Um, and so I think that was a really important component. I love the things he, he also kind of raised sort of the red flags. We talked about that earlier, uh, in the interview with him, but this idea that, um, we're, we can be so geared towards practical theology, you know, what does it look like? What's the 12 steps that that really allows us to fall prey to the cultural trends, mm -hmm. to the cultural norms. Um, and we have to recognize we always need to be asking, well, what does scripture say about this? Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, there he then does that when he talked about our vocabulary ought to be uh, what is driving the conversation, the biblical terms, not the political terms, not climate change, but stewardship of creation. Mm. Well, spiritual formation, you know, matters so much to us. So yeah. uh, I want our audience to know. That is a major strategic choice and way in which we do ministry the collaborative because information in the head is a good thing. And yet, if the heart's not formed, well, then there's no desire to love. There's no desire right. to show people that they're wanted or needed. So uh, we have a spiritual formation tool paired with each one of these episodes. And I am going to shape the tool such that there's an opportunity to create a li vocabulary list on some of these hot topics, and we can share that back out. Um, because listening to this is good. Going and spending time with the Holy Spirit, dwelling in some scripture, that's what then creates the motivation and desires. And I know you I, believe in that. I, I do. But I would also say if the motivation and the desire doesn't come, you still go do it, yeah. you know. It, yeah, and it's like working out. If you do it, eventually the habit forms and then the desire is there. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So yeah. uh, I loved when he said, you know, we need to lead with hospitality, that Jesus led with hospitality. It, he, there, was no, there were no conditions upon it um, in terms of him loving one another. Uh, so uh, it's the same thing. We need to lead with that in our lives and get over this idea of I can't host a party or I can't do this or I don't have that gift. 
Yeah. It's not an event. It's a way of life. It's a demeanor. It's a tone. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. Well, it's good to see you. And um, thanks for being my co-pilot in this kind of stuff. We have fun. So I'll see you next time. We believe strongly that great conversations can stir hearts and minds. To further encourage this, we've included a link in the show notes to a spiritual formation exercise related to today's discussion. Help us spread the word about Nuance. Like the show, share, and subscribe so others can engage. Nuance is a production of The Collaborative, the faith and work ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Orlando. Nuance is produced by Candid Goats PJ Weary and edited by Zach Baldwin. Music composed and performed by Fletcher Wilson. Nuance is made possible by the generosity of the Eleanor and T.W. Miller Jr. Foundation. For more episodes, visit collaborativeorlando.com, our YouTube channel named The Collaborative Orlando, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our three different fellowships, vocational guilds, and other programs, to subscribe to our newsletter, our bi-monthly blog, visit us online and join us on social media. On behalf of Crossland Stewart and myself, thanks for joining us. And remember that most of life is not black and white, but rather lived in the nuance.